Well, everybody, welcome to this uh, brand new episode of the Satisfied God Podcast. Uh, Raven Bird with you once again. This always, as always, it is a pleasure to be able to sit down and just speak to you in this way and share with you the reality of Christ that is beyond words. And that's why it is imperative that you do not just listen to these words and say, okay, I understand what he said, but that the words would be an invitation to your heart to sit before the Lord and ask the spirit of truth to open your eyes, to see the one who makes these words actually significant. While the words are significant because they are declaring truth, the seeing of the truth they declare is of much greater importance. And so I hope that these words, these lessons, this podcast itself is a tool for just such a thing, that this podcast is, this is my intention and my heart is now, always will be, an invitation to the heart of men to come and see Jesus, to come and see salvation in the face of Christ the Lord. And so today, in the light of all of that, is what I want to do is maybe start something that maybe periodically we'll dive into. I'm just sitting here in my uh, office today. This is not pre-recorded as far as, you know, something I'm just sharing that I've taught somewhere. This is just me sitting here. And I want to do that periodically as far as a particular study or some thoughts that I want to talk to you about. And I've been considering areas of scripture for some time that are seemingly difficult for so many to reconcile within the framework of a finished work of the culmination of the ages in Christ. And even those phrases can throw many people off because they're, in their mind, when they hear things like that, culmination of the ages and the the completion of all things and the ultimate intent of God being realized, it throws people because their concepts are inseparably connected to a dispensational view or descriptive of a yet unfulfilled matter in a uh, religiously familiar mind. But in this, and perhaps some other lessons that we'll, as I said, touch on, I want us to consider how certain verses, certain phrases, even the phrases I just used, are entirely realized in the coming of the person of Christ, the mission, the work, and the presence and being of the Messiah himself. And if you understand the entire point and weight of the scripture, and specifically the the intent and the pointing to reality that is found in the Old Testament, it served and serves still as a divinely inspired testimony concerning one ultimate end. Its burden was unto a singular intent. 
and we have inserted and improperly improperly introduced so many extras and add-ons through you know well-crafted theological strainings and i use that word straining we strain to do so you have to and we'll see some places today where that's taken place and it's not much different at all than the jews who added hundreds of extra parts and pieces and commandments to the mosaic law because you know of course we this this goes here too this has to be added too and in doing so we've cluttered up what is a singular straightforward message given by god this is my beloved son in whom my pleasure is found I mean, Jesus would say to those who add traditions and natural concepts to a divine testimony, the assumptions that you have in searching the scriptures, which you do all the time, which you do, you know, quote unquote, religiously, your assumptions in the scriptures you search miss the entire point. By going to them in a framework of works, law, and all of that, you miss the entire point of the things that you search out. Why? Because they testify of me. They have one meaning, one intent, and we would do well to just ponder the thought of that for a while. Just ponder how simple and singular it is. It is so simple that it takes divine clarity to understand because the mind of man is cluttered with man's ideas, man's assumptions again, his preconceived ideas, and his self-focused interpretations. So it doesn't take divine, you know, divine inspiration and a divine revelation of Jesus because it is so utterly complicated. It takes divine perspective to be revealed in the soul because God's perspective is the most simple and singular perspective there is. And it transcends man's and the clutter and the mess that is in the minds of men, even and especially, I would say, when it comes to theological ideologies, scriptural understandings, pursuits, thoughts, and theories. The psalmist would prophesy and the Hebrew writer would confirm that the one who comes to do or fulfill the word means the will of God came as the culmination of the volume of the book that was written of him. And these and many other declarations have to guide our approach in studying our hermeneutic or interpretation of Scripture. And they must undoubtedly lead us as we attempt to understand and share the reality of our salvation. They have to be our guide or that that concept, the singularity of it all that it's all of him, that the volume of the book is written of him, that he is the singleness of it all, the simplicity of it all, the culmination of it all, that every single word of Scripture 
every single thought of God's heart and mind is culminated in one singular word, the Logos of God, the eternal meaning and definition of all things. So the singleness of our salvation is always the issue when seeing God's intent and and the completion of that intent. And there are so many segments of Scripture that are read as having yet unrealized eschatological significance. So we point to those things and we start looking at newspapers and clippings and internet news and we say, see, these things are happening. But I can make anything fit if I look hard enough. I can make anything mean anything if I think enough and try my best to to fit Fit, an, fit this particular thing within the framework of an already strongly held conviction. So my point is, if these things are still seen in an unrealized sense, they're eschatological, which means the things of the end, the things of the end times, people call eschatology, the study of the end, and our soteriological purpose, their uh, purpose with regard to salvation, really has no significance at all. I want you to hear that. If these things that we're going to talk about and Scripture talks about, and we still point to and say, yes, still yet to be, these things are still coming, if, if they're still unrealized, when Jesus says they all, all of them testify of me in one way, shape, or form, if we still see those things unrealized and divorced from him, then their, their significance eschatologically and soteriologically, which is, again, with reference to the end times and reference to salvation itself, their significance is lost and null and void. And you can still point to that scripture all you want, but you have missed the point of it. Period. You've missed God's end. Or let's say it this way. If it is true that these things are yet unfulfilled, God has failed to sum up these things as he promised and as he preordained. Now, does that sound logical? Does that sound proper? Of course not. Either Christ, as he said, And the ushering in of a new creation, a new covenant, is the end reached or the culmination accomplished. Either that's true, or we can just twist every verse like a pretzel and use it to fit whatever taste we have and suit our particular ideological inclinations. We can do that all day long. What I want us to come come away with is 
The true fact of the matter is that Christ is God's end. Christ is the culmination, the end, the amen to all things. And he is that presently in your soul. And all of these things point to it. And today what we're going to talk about is a particular verse in Malachi chapter 4 that speaks of the coming of Elijah, the prophet, and what he would do, and how that finds its culmination in the person of Jesus Christ and not is yet to be fulfilled before the second coming, because that's what people are still waiting on. So they go to Revelation, look at the two witnesses, and of course, one of those witnesses is Elijah because that was the promise. Well, it's very simple and it's very easily seen that Jesus himself defines this and shows the end of this. And we're going to see what he came to do. Elijah, the one who came, did. How is it that that has happened? So let's let's start there and we'll we'll... You know, if you can bear with me a little bit in the weeds that I'm going to read some things, then hopefully this will help at least some of you who may have this particular uh, misconception or know someone with it, you can share this with. But again, the whole purpose here is not just to give you some kind of a intellectual stimulation in these things. It's to show you all of this is about the person and bringing all things of God's intent, his testimony, his will, his purpose into focus, into a singular reality. Bring it right into the person of their Messiah, the one promised. What is this all about? It's come unto me. And that's what Elijah the prophet came to do. So in Malachi chapter 4, verse 4, it says, Remember ye the law of Moses my servant, which I commanded unto him in Horeb for all Israel with the statutes and judgments. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. What will that Elijah do? He shall turn the heart of the fathers to the children and the heart of the children to their fathers, lest I come and smite the land with a curse. Now, in light of that, we'll we'll talk about what this actually means, but there's so many concepts, so many ideas, and it's because of a misunderstanding of things that are said in the Scripture themselves. And we're going to talk about that. But first, I want to read to you and again bear with me as we enter these the weeds here uh, just to give you some background of perspectives that are out there but this is uh, unfortunately I didn't write the reference and you don't need it anyway uh, <laughs> let me let me read this stuff uh, don't waste your time but This is a commentary about this particular verse. And it's a guy attempting to rationalize 
the scripture and the prophetic um, intent here and trying to twist it enough to make it fit in two different places and more importantly or most importantly this guy to fit his particular doctrinal theological idea so he says it is said very clearly in the bible that the prophet elijah who never died will return a little before the second coming of christ okay in the keep that in mind in the same way that the disciples in jesus time were confounded because they didn't see elijah's coming before the messiah now now uh we'll read those verses in a moment I'm going to read some of them in this uh, particular commentary, but we'll go to those and, and, and explain them. But let's listen to his explanation of them first. Again, the straining that is happening here. So they were confounded because they didn't see Elijah's coming before the Messiah. Uh, so many modern Christians are confused, believing that Elijah was John the Baptist. Now listen to that. They're confused because they believe Elijah was John the Baptist. And this prophet was not Elijah, as he himself clearly states in John chapter 1, verse 21. And he said, this is the verse. And they asked him, what then are thou Elias? And he said, I am not. If John the Baptist really was Elijah, he would not have denied it. John the Baptist came in the spirit and power of Elijah as says Luke chapter 1, verse 17. And that is why Jesus said that he was the Elijah that was going to come before the Lord in his first advent. Now, notice again the straining to try to make the distinction between a second advent and a first advent or coming, okay? Nevertheless, even Jesus himself said that John the Baptist was the, now listen to how he adds to scripture, quote unquote, the Elijah-like prophet that was to come in his first coming. Still near the second coming of the Lord, the true Elijah shall come. Now, <laughs> again, he is straining to attempt to keep his theology intact. So he will add to scriptures using Elijah-like prophet. I don't, I don't recall ever reading that phrase in the scripture at all. But he feels safe in adding that to it. Why? Because he feels safe in protecting his theological ideas and bents. Okay? So he says that Jesus says all of this, that at the second coming, the real Elijah will come. So he reads these verses. Again, we'll read the same verses. And I want you to hear these verses and see that it is absolutely not saying what he is saying that it's saying. It's in total contradiction to the point this guy's trying to make. And yet he thinks it's making his point. So 
these these are the verses and let's see i'm trying to find exactly matthew 17 10 through 13 the verses here this is again we'll read them later his disciples asked him saying why then say the scribes that elias must first come now the context of this as we'll read in a moment is after they come down from the mount where jesus is transfigured and see elijah and moses so when they come down this is the question they ask him uh why you know why uh, say the scribes that elias or elijah must first come and jesus answered and said to them elias truly shall first come and restore all things listen to that phrase elias truly shall first come now he he underlines the word shall because that sounds future to him. And in the Greek, okay, it may be future, but he's speaking in the context of a prophecy. He shall first come and in his coming restore all things. Now we'll talk about that. But I say, verse 12, but I say unto you <coughs> that Elias is come already. You hear that? I say Elias is come already. The prophet said he shall first come and restore all things. I say he's already come and they knew him not. Why? Because they sought him or believed his coming would bring about something totally different. They thought this was going to have political, natural, carnal, Results. That was their mindset. But he came already, Jesus says, and they did not know him, but have done unto him whatsoever they wanted or listed. Likewise, also the Son of Man suffer of them. Then the disciples understood. Listen what they understood. He spoke unto them of John the Baptist. Now, again, this guy doesn't understand that, but he, his argument's null and void now. <coughs> Excuse me. So he goes on writing in his uh, commentary, everyone I know interprets from this passage that John the Baptist was the Elijah that was prophesied. But as far as I know, no one interprets from that passage that Jesus said clearly that Elijah shall come and shall restore all things note that when referring to the true elijah jesus speaks in future tense but when referring to john the baptist he speaks in past tense that's because he's trying to show them what was prophesied as a future thing has become a past event very simple that's called language from this passage we can deduce he goes on without forcing the argument, which is absolutely what he's doing, forcing and straining at it, that Christ admitted that Elijah was still yet to come. But this is not all. Let's go on to read the original prophecies. And so he goes into Malachi, what we just read. And he says here, uh, let's read 
where Elijah's coming uh, before the second coming of the Lord is prophesied. Behold, I will send my messenger. He shall prepare the way before me and the Lord whom you seek shall suddenly come to his temple. In this verse, the one who's coming in mission Malachi is talking about is called my messenger. He doesn't call him Elijah. Besides, Malachi says very clearly that the messenger's mission is to prepare the way before Christ, and that after such a specific mission is that Christ would come to his temple. Listen to these words. I mean, do we not realize that that's exactly what he came to his own and his own received him not? He came to his people. He came to his house. This is not about him coming one day to a temple that people have built. But that's where he goes. During the time when this prophet comes, he'll come and he'll enter into the second temple. Anyway, I won't belabor the point reading this guy. But that's a misconception. And again, what do you do? What do you have to do? You have to twist. You have to manipulate words and try to, you know, manipulate these things to fit into your ideology. But it's very simple. What Jesus said is true. <laughs> what Jesus said was absolutely true. And we could spend a lot of time reading a lot of misconceptions and, and misunderstandings and bore you to tears with it. That's not my intent. I want you to understand that the mindset of doctrine is to protect the doctrine. Okay? People will do a lot to protect their thoughts and their ideas. All God is after is for a soul to come to know the simplicity of a salvation that is complete, that is perfect, and that cannot be altered. And this is exactly what this prophet is pointing to. This is exactly what Elijah, the prophet, came to do. He came to make that happen. Okay? So what I want to look at is the mission, the point of the coming of this Elijah. What did he come to do? I've Listen, I, I'm not an old man, but I've been around enough stuff, heard enough uh, theologies and heard enough twisting of scripture to have heard many different ways these words are taken and made to mean something they do not mean. Most of it is, a lot of it, was men trying to manipulate other men where he begins to talk about fathers and children of course, you have these men of God, quote unquote, that believe that they are the fathers of children. They are the fathers and you are under them. You're their underlings. And so the whole point is that God would turn the heart of the children to the fathers. 
And we could, like again, like I said, we could spend hours talking about Elijah. What did he do? Well, he brought about and, and declared in the midst of the worshiping of idols, the worship of one true God. That he would turn people away and, and judge the hearts of men who were turned to Baal worship and idol worship. He also took down the reign of, of idol worshipers and prophetesses of Baal like Ahab, prophets and prophetesses of Baal, she was anyway, uh, uh, Ahab and Jezebel. Confronting idol worship, fornication toward other gods instead of the one true God. And you're going to see, that's exactly what John the Baptist, the Elijah that was promised, that's what he did. That's what it means that he came to turn the hearts of the children to the fathers and the fathers to the children. And we'll see that. And I think when you go into Revelation chapter 2, specifically when he says to uh, the church at Thyatira that, uh, you know, you have... The thing I have against you is you have allowed Jezebel to remain in your midst and seduce and teach. Let me read it. Turn to it real quick. Uh, I'm sorry, it was chapter 2. Notwithstanding, verse 20 of Revelation 2, I have a few things against thee, because thou sufferest the woman Jezebel, who calleth herself a prophetess, to teach and to seduce my servants to commit fornication, to eat things sacrificed to idols. And I gave her space to repent of her fornication, and she repented not. Behold, I will cast her into a bed, and them that commit adultery with her into great tribulation. Now that's another... That's another lesson altogether about the tribulation and what, what that was, except they repent of their deeds. What is he talking about? Well, basically the same thing, that they would continue under the idolatry of Jezebel. They would continue to worship other gods. But in this context, it's brought into the very things of Judaistic worship of a God who has fulfilled that system, brought to an end that age, and brought about fulfillment in Christ. And yet, they're being seduced, just like a lot of the churches that Paul wrote to, to look back to the idols and to fornicate and to go back to worship things that are not gods at all, that are not of God at all, that is actually in contradiction to the newness of reality that God has brought about in spirit and truth. Now, we don't have time to get off into that. And again, we could spend forever looking at the significance of Elijah just in that story alone with Jezebel. But this Elijah who is coming is the same picture. He will deal with the fornication and adulterous and, and uh, uh, character and nature of the nation in whom he is speaking and in whom he is pointing, in which he's pointing to the Messiah who has come. We know Matthew 11, <clears throat> verse 13 through 15, for all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. And verse 14 of that says, and if you will receive it, 
This is Elijah, which was to come. He that hath ears to hear, let him hear. You see that? This one, this one unto whom all the prophets and the law prophesied, and that's going to be important in a minute. Remember, we read at the beginning of the Malachi prophecy, remember the law. Remember the law that I gave. The prophets and the law prophesied unto John. His coming culminated the testimonial intent, and that John came to give a final horn or trumpet blow and say, this is him. Here he is. And in that, he came as the Elijah which was prophesied. Now here's what was prophesied of John, and we'll read these verses as was alluded to in the comments that we read earlier. In Luke chapter 1, verse 16 through 17, said, Many of the children of Israel shall he turn to the Lord their God. Now this is being prophesied concerning John. This is before he's even, you know, this is, uh, I think his father is prophesying this concerning him. Many of the children of Israel shall he turn, listen to that, turn to the Lord their God. He shall go, bef- he shall go before him in the spirit and power of Elias to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children. Now, listen to the correlation. He will turn many to the Lord their God, and he comes to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children. There is a correlation there. These things are not separate. The turning of their hearts to the Lord is equivalent to and the same as the turning of the hearts of the fathers to the children, and vice versa. And the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Now, again, many will deny this as absolutely fulfilled because they will point to John's own words as this guy did saying, no, that's not true because it says, and we're going to read more verses than he gave us in John chapter one, verse 19, and we're going to read through verse, I think 28. It says, this is the record of John. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are thou? And he confessed and denied not, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they answered him, What then? Art thou Elijah? And he said, I am not. Art thou that prophet? He said, No. Then said they unto him, Who art thou? That we may give an answer to them that sent us. What sayest thou of thyself? And he said, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness, making straight the way of the Lord. Now, remember what we read earlier, and the guy denied that this was the purpose of him in in the coming before the coming of Christ first time, as he said, that it was to prepare the way and that he would prepare the way and then suddenly the Lord would come to his temple. This is what he says. My purpose is to make way, make straight the way of the Lord as said the prophet Isaiah. And they which were sent 
were of the Pharisees. And they asked him and said unto him, Why baptize thou then, if thou be not that Christ, nor Elias, neither that prophet? And John answered, saying, I baptize with water. But there standeth one among you whom you know not. He it is. Now notice the the one who was the 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 one preparing the way and making way straight the way of the Lord, and the one that was in their midst of whom he spoke, the Messiah himself, both, if you take the words of Jesus concerning John and of John concerning Jesus, both of them were right there and they did not know him. Neither of them. Why? It shows that what God was doing was not open to man's perspective at the time. It, man couldn't conceive this. Man's, eye, man's sight, man's faculties could not take this in. There was, it, there was nothing of it that was uh, plausible or feasible to the natural mind because it didn't happen in the way they thought it would. So there's one standing among you whom you know not. He it is who's coming after me is preferred or intended before me. Whose shoe latches I am not worthy to unloose. Now, the issue was, and it's the same when, uh, I think it's in Matthew 16, who do who do they say I am? Well, they say you're a prophet. They say you're Elijah. They say you're Jeremiah. They say you're this. Because their idea was one physically raised from the dead. But he was not a physically resurrected prophet. He was the one promised who would come in the spirit and power of Elijah. Okay, so then we go into John chapter 1, verse 29. The next day, John sees Jesus coming unto him and saith, Behold, the Lamb of God, which takes away the sin of the world. Now this takes us to not only the coming of Elijah, but what Elijah in his coming was to do, the turning of the heart and all of that. He sees Jesus come and he says, behold, the lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, after me comes a man who is preferred before me for he was before me. There's the order of the, even the law and the prophets. There was one preferred before that existed, that existed merely to testify of a reality preferred and intended before it. And its intent in testifying of that one preferred was to give way to his coming and point people to him when he comes. That's what John's doing. So he was preferred before me for he was before me and I knew him not, but he should be made manifest to Israel. Therefore am I come baptizing with water and John bear record saying I saw the spirit descending from heaven like a dove and it abode rested permanently is what that word means upon him and I knew him not 
But he that sent me to baptize with water, the same said unto me, Upon whom you shall see the Spirit descending and remaining on him, the same is he which baptizes with the Holy Ghost. And I saw and bear record that this is the Son of God. This is him. Behold him. This is the one that removes sin forever. This is the one, the law and the prophets, which I represent, spoke about. He's the one that has received from God validation as the beloved. He is the one that has received a confirmation of having the Spirit remain on him forever without measure. A new creation embodied in a man, because we have the whole picture again of Noah's flood sending out the dove, and the dove does not come back. How does he know? What does he know now? That that creation is ready for habitation. Where does that dove end up? He doesn't go back to the ark. He comes on to the sun. He descends upon him and remains upon him forever as a new creation as the place that the soles of his feet can absolutely rest and abide forever. There's the picture. Now, so many denials of these things. But this is true. He came to point the hearts to the Lord, to turn them to the Lord their God, and therefore turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to the fathers. And we'll see that in a moment. Now, after the encounter, and I'm rereading these verses so we can see them in somewhat of context, after the transfiguration takes place they descend they come down the mountain and you know i think before that jesus tells them do not tell any man until after the resurrection and here's the question again his disciples said why then do the scribes say that elias must first come and jesus answered and said unto them elias truly shall first come and restore all things now that's a big big part of this too but i say unto you elijah is come already and they did know him but they did unto him whatsoever they desired or listed likewise shall the son of man suffer of them then the disciples understood that he spake of john the baptist why did they know immediately that he spoke to them of John the Baptist because he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. He did not, he, he, he wasn't, you know, playing word games and, and splitting hairs and using future and all of that. The only reason he uses future and, and, and uh, past tense is to say that future prophet that was prophesied to come is now come. He's already came. There's future and past. He's here. He's, he's already came he already did his duty he's already uh moved out of the way as he said i must decrease because he has increased that's the order of the thing 
Uh, he increases. His coming brings about something that I was, uh, you know, vital to the coming of it and to point people to it and acknowledge it in their midst to show them this is the thing. This is it. This is what. This is the. This is what was always intended. He's here. And then he says, because he's come now, I decrease. I, I step back out of the picture. I've done my job. I'm no longer necessary to this picture as to perform the you know, job of pointing them and saying, here he is. I've done that. That's my job. That's what I'm here to do. So, what does it mean that this one, before the great and terrible day of the Lord, what is that great and terrible? It's the day of Christ. It's the day of the cross. It's the day of the putting away of the first and the establishing of the second. It's great and terrible. That's the day of the Lord. It's the day where the judgment would come and there would be a division made between spirit, flesh and spirit where the law would be fulfilled and a new reality would come about not to discredit and disregard the law but to bring it to its fulfillment. I am come not to take it away and destroy it but to fulfill it. That's the great and terrible day of the Lord. And in his coming, Jesus says that the Elijah that was promised and should come has come. And it says he shall come and restore all things. Now Barnes notes says he did not mean by this that Elijah had not yet come. He tells them immediately that he had come. But he means to affirm that it was a true doctrine that the scribes taught that Elijah would appear before the coming of the Messiah. And to restore all things, which was part of why he came, means the word there actually means to heal, to correct, and to put back into proper order. It means Elijah would put things in a proper state. He would be the instrument of reforming a people, restoring them in some measure to the proper notion concerning the Messiah and his coming. And what that meant. Because they had all kind of crazy, as I said, carnal, political, nationalistic ideas with regard to it. John didn't come to restore all things himself perfectly. He came to hand them over to the person of the Messiah who would complete and bring about the consummation of all that he pointed to and said was coming. So that those who would, in the, in the light of the testimony of John, would follow him, just like the disciples of John came to him and says, they're all going to Jesus. What are you going to do about this? And he says, thank God it worked. My 
job is done. Because they had all taken the notion of his declaration and started coming to him. Coming to the one that he pointed to. And that was the point. Remember, he's in the midst of Jews who are waiting for the Messiah. And the Jews of that day had done so much damage to the testimony of the fathers and to the true intent that God had given in the scriptures in so many ways. Jesus rebukes them many times of adding their traditions and making null and void the word of God. They had so many convoluted concepts that they had added to it and misconceptions and all of these things. So what was his what was his directive in his coming as the one who came as that prophet promised, as the Elijah promised. You say, well, he denied he was. He denied he was the resurrected bodily form of that Elijah, but he never denied that he came in the spirit of it. And I promise you this, Jesus said he did. I'll take his word for it. Jesus said he is that fulfillment. That's enough, I think. Don't you? So what does it mean that he came to turn the hearts? Because what he did was come to hand them over, to turn their hearts, to point to the proper, correct order and state and nature of things. This is him, guys. All this stuff is not it. This is him. He's the one. Come to him. And again, the point that needs to be made is the first verse we read in Malachi. In verse 4, Remember ye the law of Moses my servant, which I commanded unto him in Horeb for all Israel, which the statute, uh, with the statutes and judgment. Remember the law of Moses. Because these verses that we're reading, this transition that we're seeing with John the Baptist is doing that very thing. It's introducing a transition from the law of Moses to the one of whom Moses wrote and testified. They testify of me. And the whole intent of John was to point them to the me of whom they testified. So to understand this more, we have to look, you know, again, uh, how this took place, not just, you know, that it took place. And as we've said, John took the entirety of the testimonial age in himself and became the final vocalization of its goal. Behold him. And the one declaring that he was to give way as the friend of the bridegroom. Again, to declare to Israel that God has brought their long-awaited hope to them. So what did he do? How did he turn the hearts of the children to the fathers? Because we, again, we see that in a natural way, a carnal, fleshly way. We, 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 you know, so much so we look at a natural nation of Israel and say, well, that, that still has to happen. There's, there's some nationalistic uh, repentance and restoration that has to happen. That's not what it's about at all. It happened right here in this, in this moment in time, in this culmination of God's 
intent. This is when all this happened. This is when this took place. He summed it all up. He, he pointed everybody to the end of God's intent and did just that. And in fact, we can read this in, in Acts chapter 13, verse 32. I go to this a lot because it's, it's a beautiful way of seeing this. Listen to the words. Again, the intent, the coming of Elijah, who we have seen, is John the Baptist. Let's not divide this thing in the dispensations. He is not divided. The one promise came. Jesus says it. He has come, and he is John the Baptist. Why? Because he talked about me. He introduced me and unveiled me to the nation that I was intended to come to first. I came to them first. To fulfill in their midst the promise of God. To give them the opportunity to partake of the very thing God had promised them. However, they wanted it in a different form. They wanted it to feed their lust. Instead of fulfilled instead of fulfill the hope that God had actually given them. They had a hope of their own. They had a lust of their own that they wanted God to fulfill. And God will not change his intent for anybody. So Acts chapter 13, verse 32, we declare unto you the good news, the glad tidings, how that the promise which was made unto the fathers, listen to that, the fathers. What was his intent? To turn the heart of the fathers to the children and the children to the fathers. The promise which was made unto the fathers, God hath fulfilled that promise unto us, their children, in that he raised up Jesus again. As it is written in the second Psalm, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. Acts chapter 26, verse 4 through 8. My manner of life from my youth, which was, this is Paul speaking in front of King Agrippa, I believe. Yeah, Agrippa. The manner of life from my youth, which at the first among mine own nation at Jerusalem, know all the Jews, which knew me from the beginning, if they would testify, that after the most straightest sect of our religion, I lived as a Pharisee. And now I stand and am judged for the hope of, of the promise made unto our fathers. See, Paul on the other side of the cross came declaring the same thing. What the fathers said, what God said to the fathers has now been brought to us their children. Under which promise our 12 tribes instantly serving God day and night hope to come, still waiting for which hope's sake, King Agrippa, I'm accused of the Jews. Why should it be thought an incredible thing that God should raise the dead? See, this is realized in Christ, raised, glorified. The very thing that we see a, a, a glimpse of in the baptism and on the Mount of Transfiguration. But you see the same thing here. God, who at sundry times, Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1 and 2, in diverse manners spake in time past unto the fathers 
by the prophets hath in these last days spoken unto us in his Son, whom he hath appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the worlds. So we see that Jesus came as the end of the Father's hope, and we see that Jesus came as the culmination of the promise made unto the fathers, now fulfilled unto the children. John was sent as prophesied to turn the hearts of the fathers to the offspring, to the children. The children were the offspring of those unto whom God spoke in these various ways and manners by prophets. And his, in, and his purpose as the Elijah who, the, who would come was to bring into the full view of that nation in the midst of the children of the fathers, the one that says, we are the ones who are the children. We had the fathers. Yes, you did. You did, which means you should come to me. If you would actually believe what your father said, what Moses wrote, you'd come to me. The whole purpose of John was to do just that. And some obeyed, some did not. Some refused the ministry of John to say, here he is. Because his whole point was to bring into full view and to disclose in the midst of a nation who had missed are, are misunderstood, misappropriated, added to, corrupted with the traditions and all of the other stuff, the, the very law and intent of God in it. He was trying to restore these things, clarify it, culminate it, bring it to its proper purpose, its proper order. Here he is. And he brought that into the full view of that nation. And so that what the heart of the fathers expected and desired as a divine promise was now realized and had come to the children of those fathers, their offspring. It was now here and available now, not as an eschatological expectation, but as a fulfilled spiritual actualization reality right there embodied in their midst standing there and he points to him as the Elijah son of God and says here he is to the children come to the hopes of your fathers fulfilled and he brings the father's desire into the midst of the children and turns the heart of the fathers toward the children and in in and his desire and his intent was to bring the children to the realization and the receiving of the hope of the fathers in its realized, culminated, perfect form, Jesus himself. And what happens? Many refused. The majority refused. That does not mean he did not do his job. It means they did not receive. 
what they were intended for. The children did not in turn and receive the desire of the fathers. The heart and hope of the fathers did not become the the accepted, joyously received fulfillment. Now, some did. We know the, the, the first of the church, all of it were, were Jews who were converted over, if you want to use the word converted. They were brought to Christ. They heard the gospel and they believed in him and came to him. And we see the same thing that 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 uh, Malachi prophesied concerning if they do not believe him and come to him, he would smite the land with a curse. The word earth is used there, but you know, it's actually land, which speaks of the land of Judea, basically. And according to John Gill's commentary, he he agrees with that too. And the greater part of those inhabitants did not come to Christ. They didn't believe in the Messiah. They refused him, as John writes. And you and you see the same thing, you know, uh, smite the earth with a curse, bring judgment. It's the same thing said, not in those specific terms, but you see the, inclina- the, the implication of it in the words, he came to his own, his own received him not, but to the, the but there, but to those that received him, he gave the power to become sons of God. The but there has the judgment in it okay he didn't say but he destroyed them all he destroyed the blah 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 in 70 AD took it away and he you know he doesn't do all that but that's all he had to say it's the same picture it's the same meaning he came to show to the children that what their fathers desired, the heart and hope of their fathers based upon what Moses and the prophets said was now standing in their midst. And he did so in hope that some, many, maybe all, would turn and that their hearts would turn and receive the very thing that their fathers told them about, promised, waited on, longed for. That's what it means. That has nothing to do with the a future second coming of Christ and what Elijah is going to do when he comes back. Come on. Again, straining here, twisting. This is definitely not about men who see themselves as spiritual fathers to a bunch of peon children say, the whole purpose of this is to put you under me and my teaching and submit you to me. (laughs) Please, take that somewhere else. That's ridiculous. He He did what he was sent to do. He is the Elijah promise. There is not another one coming. Because they are they that testify of Christ and his intent in his coming, the reason Elias, John the Baptist was sent before, right before the coming of their Messiah, the fulfilling of the hope, promises, was to do just that, 
to be the bridge between the fathers and their children and say their hope is now available to you. It's now yours for the taking. Come and receive what God promised your fathers. And those who did not received the curse and the judgment. Remember, part of that is seen in Mark chapter 12 in the parable of Jesus. And you read in verse 7 of Mark 12, But the husbandmen said among themselves, This is the heir. Let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and cast him out of the vineyard. And what shall therefore the Lord of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the husbandmen and will give the vineyard unto others. There's but to those who received him. They become children of God. They become sons. They became partakers, recipients of the vineyard and the fruit of it. Acts 3 says the same thing. He shall send Jesus Christ, which before was preached unto you, whom the heavens must receive until the time of restitution of all things, which shall, which hath spoken, Oh, I'm sorry. which God has spoken by the mouth of all his holy prophets since the world began. For Moses truly said unto the fathers of prophets, shall the Lord raise up unto you of your brethren like unto me. Him shall you hear in all things whosoever he, whatsoever he shall say unto you. And it shall come to pass every soul which will not hear that prophet shall be destroyed from among the people. What does it mean then to be the people? It means to hear the prophet and receive him. And that's the reason John came. To turn the hearts to the Lord. To bring again, to be that bridge, that link that could say to the children, here's the fulfillment. Here's the one who fulfills your father's hope. The expectation, the promises, all of it. Come to him. Receive in him and as him the end of your father's hope. And do not face the condemnation that rejecting this one because he's not coming again. You don't get a second chance at this as far as here's the moment. Here's the transition. This is... You know, if you miss this, you miss it. There's not another one. There's not another new creation. There's not another new covenant. There's not another one. Receive him or you don't receive anything God has for you. Your fathers, the heart of your fathers, the hope and the heart and the desire of your fathers is standing right here in your midst. And he says that in the midst of their children. And some came. Some received. Some didn't. But those who did received the Father's expectation in absolute spiritual fulfillment. Culmination. Realization. Embodied in one perfect 
Son, in whom God's pleasure and delight is found. So, this was just one of the verses, one of the areas that I wanted to talk about that was on my heart to address and it's been on my mind for some time. And there's others, and we'll talk about that as we go. I'm not going to say this is going to be weekly or whatever, but uh, there's a couple of more places right now that I'm t- thinking about and pondering and ways to ex- you know, explain it and talk about it to you. But I hope this helped with some. If you have people who have a misunderstanding with regard to this, uh, please share this with them. Um, you know, not to start arguments but to uh, or debates, but maybe it'll clarify some. May the Lord... The Lord will work with it and, and use it to bring some clarity. And then, you know, his work is what's important, not my words, as I said at the beginning of this. So thank you guys so much <clears throat> again for listening. Love you so much. Thanks to you who have been so supportive in finances. You know who you are. I know who you are. And just know that your support <laughs> means everything. It really does. It, it, it means that not only that you feel that it's worth that investment, but that, you know, it helps me do this. I don't do this for money. I promise you that. There were many, many years that I did this. Not one dime came in. So I am grateful and appreciative to those who see fit to help in in the ways you do. Um, it really it really means a lot, and those who just reach out and send letters and call and tell me how helpful these uh, you know podcasts are. Thank you, thank you for being here and supporting and and listening this this year, and we'll continue next year. To do the same. Uh, the gospel doesn't change, so I'm I'm not doing much to change. There's a few things that maybe we'll do uh, a little more of, as I said in previous previous episodes about maybe some travel. I've got a couple of books that I'm working on. I appreciate a gentleman that's been uh, helping me with some transcription because that's the part that always hangs me up in these things. I get some of the roughest transcriptions, and it's it's very hard to work through them when you're getting bad transcriptions of uh, certain audio files that you're wanting to put into a book form and you're having the first go through it and, you know, get the punctuations and sentences actually defined before you can actually go through it. It's very difficult because my mind just is not equipped for that type of detail. But I, once I can read it properly, I can go through it, uh, not fast, but go through it and, so I appreciate Steve doing that. Uh, he's been a big help there, and I'm probably going to be reaching out to him for some of these other ones in the Romans because that's terrible transcriptions that I have. Not that people did, but I did through the um, YouTube. The YouTube app does transcription, and they're awful. Uh, no punctuation sentences. You just keep running on forever, and it's hard for me to, to look at them that way and, and do anything with them. Uh, now, you know, I got transcriptions from Cindy, you know, who you're, uh, at the beginning of that. And it was really helpful. And I've gone through those and pretty, pretty well, but the, 
ones that I've been working on, it's just been a real hassle. So just a long way to say thank you to you guys who are helping in that too. And hopefully next year I can at least get one of those done and finished up and stop promising it and actually produce it. So thank you for your prayers concerning that. Thank you for your love and your help this year. I love you very much. Till next time, amen. Thank you.